Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was originally given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Gospel of Matthew series. Matthew chapter 5. So um, last week, the legendary Dr. Tim Mackey was here. How good was that? It was really great. If you missed it, please go back and listen to the podcast, not just because Tim is fantastic, but because that was a really important teaching in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. Tim did a fantastic job with an overview of all that Jesus had to say about the kingdom of God, which is the central theme, not only of Matthew, but of all four gospels. And it was really the setup for the next section in the gospel of Matthew that uh, goes by the name, the Sermon on the Mount, or what I prefer to call Jesus' manifesto for a whole new way to be human in the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God. That's a bit of a mouthful. So... We'll stick with the Sermon on the Mount. And now we are ready to actually kick that off. Let's start off in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. I really believe that God has something for us tonight. So, Father, we just ask you to have your way in our mind and our imagination. Direct our thought life to you. Out of the scriptures, out of everything that's stirring in my mind and heart and life, direct us into your thought process, Jesus. Reshape our mind and imagination, and out of that place, may you transform all of us. Amen. Matthew chapter five, verse one. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a strange, odd, brilliant, provocative way to start off a sermon with a list of blessings or what are often called the Beatitudes. That's from the Latin translation of the text. The word blessed is actually makarios in the original language in Greek. Can you say that, makarios? Yeah, well done. And it's a word that's used all over Jewish writings from around the time of Jesus, also all over pagan literature from around the same time, but it's really hard to translate into English because in all honesty, we have no equivalent for it at all in our language. Some translations have blessed, that's what my Bible, the NIV, reads, and that's fine, but the tricky thing, and make sure you catch this, is it's not the word used in Greek or in Hebrew for blessing from God, for divine favor over your life. So that teaching from a few weeks ago about the blessing, you remember that? It's not that word at all. It's a whole other word, and it has very little to do with God. Um, Another way to translate it is happy, and depending on your translation of the Bible, it might read that. But the tricky thing with that is happy comes with all the overtones of American culture. Some translations have fortunate 
or throw a party. Really, it was a salutation. It wasn't a word. It was more of a, something you would say to open up a conversation. So a number of scholars argue that the best kind of equivalent we have, and it's not quite right, but in English, is congratulations. So when something really great would happen to you, the birth of a child, or you land a new job, or this, that, or the other, you get a date, let's set the bar lower, or whatever, um, <laughs> somebody would walk up to you and say, Makarios, congratulations, blessed are you, happy are you, fortunate are you, man, God has smiled on you, or the gods have smiled on you, or fate, or whatever, has smiled on you. In fact, it could even be said in jealousy, like, Makarios, blessed are you, okay? It was even, you know that, like when people congratulate you and really what they mean is I wish my life was your life, but I hate you because whatever. That, that's just me, okay. There we go. And so Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount with this word over and over and over again, Makarios, congratulations. But then what follows is a list of eight types of people but it's a bizarre list. It's not at all what you would expect. It's the poor in spirit. It's those who mourn. It's the meek. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, if you're new to Jesus and the writings of the New Testament, and if this is your first time reading through the Sermon on the Mount, my guess is you're thinking, Jesus, are you out of your mind? In what universe is anything on that list a good thing? Jesus, you're fantastic, but I think you spent too much time out in the hot Israeli sun. What, what is going on here? Now, the blessings or the Beatitudes, in my humble opinion, I really mean that, are one of the most important of all the teachings of Jesus. Right here, the first thing in the Sermon on the Mount with this Matthew's collection of all the most important teachings of Jesus in one place, and it's right at the top. One of the most important teachings of Jesus, but I would also argue with a lot of humility that it's one of the most misread of all the teachings of Jesus. A lot of people read this and I think kind of warp and twist it out of shape, but we need to, it's right at the top, we need to get this part right. So first, let's talk about what this list is not. First off, it's not a list of virtues. The main mistake that I think people make here is they turn the blessings into a list of virtues or of good things. I read quite a few scholars this last week. I kind of got lost in my library for a day or two. And um, very few take this position, but it was odd to read a few, in particular kind of older, more popular level teachers, argue that it's a list of virtues and really do all sorts of textual gymnastics to kind of twist everything into a virtue. So, you know, the poor in spirit are those who are dependent on God and just really know how badly they need God. And those who mourn are those who mourn over their sin or over the sin of the world. And the meek are those with power under control. It's not the weak, because we don't like that in America. It's those with self-discipline, who have the power to kill you, but don't, you know, or whatever. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are those who ache, you know, for more of God or whatever. And that, that might be right. Um, but Jesus doesn't actually say any of that. For example, he just says the poor. There are two Greek words for poor. The first is panes, which means something like the working poor, those that are living paycheck to paycheck. But that's not the word Jesus uses here. The word Jesus uses here is patokos, and that means those living hand to mouth in abject poverty right on the brink of starvation. 
Then he adds that phrase just here in Matthew, in spirit, the poor in spirit. What does that mean? The spiritual poor? Dallas Willard and a few others translate it spiritual zeros. People that have absolutely nothing to offer at a material level, are living hand to mouth, or even at a spiritual level, are not some picture perfect, you know, virtuous, whatever. I think that by poor, Jesus just means poor. Now, is poverty a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad, it's not a trick question. Thank you. Well, it's a bad thing. All right, some of you are like, I used to be, yes, it's a bad thing. I was just in South Africa. We have some friends here all the way from South Africa. We're so happy you're here. Welcome. And I love your country so much, but it was my understanding that South Africa has the largest wealth disparity of any nation in the world. And it's just crazy when you're there. You're in Pretoria, and it's beautiful. I was down in Cape Town at the end, which is officially like, you wonder where the Garden of Eden was? It's there, and nothing's changed, actually. It's there. It's incredible. This city is like, I was begging Jesus to call me to plant a church there, and he would not do it. Um, It was really sad. But it's just like Portland and California and Kauai all made a city together. I was like, Jesus, please. Nope, nothing. But Cape Town, you know, there's insane wealth there. So in the urban core, which is all wealthy, for the most part, all white, they're they're insane wealth. It's as nicer and nicer than Beverly Hills or a bougie part of San Francisco. It's sunny. It's a beach town. But then you drive 10 minutes, literally at the most, maybe five, and you're in a high-density area, which is the non-PC term, the PC term for, you know, a township. And there's two-plus million people just in that one township, pretty much all people of color, living in abject poverty, no running water, no electricity, no sewer system, um, living under a hut, a ramshackle, tin shed, 10 minutes apart. And it just does, it's this nauseating kind of vertigo at a socioeconomic level. I don't think that Jesus is saying that's a good thing. I don't think Jesus is down with that. I don't think he's down with the growing gap between rich and poor even in our own nation, though it's nothing nearly that bad. Same with those who mourn. Jesus does not say those who mourn over sin or the state of whatever. He just says those who mourn. Anybody mourning tonight? Anybody sad? Anybody depressed? Anybody grieving? A miscarriage? The failure of a marriage? a wayward child, a dream that ended up a failure. Anybody mourning tonight? Jesus would say, blessed are you. I don't think he's saying that anything bad in your life is a good thing at all. Um, Blessed are the meek. That word doesn't mean power under control. I'm sorry, that's just not what it means. Um, In fact, a better translation, a number of scholars argue, is either the powerless. It's not power under control. It's those with no power at all or really the most accurate translation is the oppressed or those living under injustice. Remember, Jesus is speaking to people under the boot of the Roman Empire. So the first century, he's up in the Galilee, the north part of Israel, no power at all. For the most part, his crowd is peasant farmers living on ancestral land in debt, taxes upwards, depending on which historian you read, of 70, 80, 90%. They are oppressed. They are living under injustice. I don't think Jesus is saying that's a good thing. I don't think he's saying that's a good thing at all. Now, you're smart thinking people, and I know you're thinking, well, what about the next line? What about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? And there are two ways to read that. It could be that Jesus is saying that in kind of a modern worship song kind of a way, like, I ache for more of God. But notice, he doesn't say those who hunger and thirst for God. He says for righteousness. Now, in Matthew's lexicon, righteousness means right relationships with God, 
with other people, with yourself, and with the earth itself. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a more likely reading is it's those who don't have right relationships with God, with others, with themselves, with the earth. In our language, it's people who are a mess, who don't have it all together. It's the single mom on baby number three from another guy. The first two are in foster care. She's an addict, and she really, if you sit her down, honest to God, she so badly wants to get her life back together, get off whatever drug, get her children back, get her family. She, honest to God, she wants that so bad, but she just can't. She just can't get it together. She's just a mess. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't think Jesus is saying that any of that is a good thing. And honestly, um, only Americans would psychologize a list of poverty and sadness and injustice and dysfunction into virtues because it's so far from a lot of our experience here in the bubble of the West. Now, there are virtues on that list for sure, don't get me wrong, in particular in the second half. In fact, in Greek, so there's eight blessings, and in Greek, there's a clear, it's a bit obscured by the English translation, but there's a clear distinction between the first four and the last four. So each grouping has exactly 36 words, Matthew's brilliant. And the first four all start with the same Greek letter, phi. And in my um, opinion, the first four are definitely not virtues, I don't think. But the last four are closer to virtues. Um, In particular, for sure, peacemakers, because then Jesus adds on that phrase, children of God. That was a first century idiom for somebody who would share the character trait of a father. So if you are a peacemaker, then you share a character trait of the father of God himself. So there's at least one virtue in there, and pure in heart, that's beautiful. Others we read in a virtuous way, like peacemaker. Well, I mean, that's a fantastic thing. But remember, this is first century Israel. A peacemaker is a Benedict Arnold. A peacemaker is a traitor to your cause. You don't want a peacemaker. You want a violent warlord to fight off the Roman Empire and set you free, okay? So this is a, there's something here that is provocative to the status quo. So my point is, there is a virtue or two in there, but as a general rule, overall, this is not a list of virtues. Secondly, if you're taking notes, it's not a list of commands. If you read it as a list of virtues, then naturally the next step is to read it as a list of de facto commands, something you should go do. I remember I was at a prayer meeting a number of years ago, and they had us pray through, great, well-meaning people that I love, smart people, but they had us pray through this and pray. I'm like, I don't really want to pray that I would be poor or pray that I would be sad or pray that I would be oppressed or I don't like really want to pray that. I don't think Jesus would have me pray that either. Jesus does not command, there's not a command here, right? That's not, it's not lost in translation. It's right in front of you. It's not a command. It's a blessing. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's not a command for you to go out and be poor or go out and be sad or go out and get yourself persecuted or whatever. Finally, it's not a list of timeless truths. If you think about the way the world actually works, do the meek always inherit the earth? No, but Jesus says they do. But do the meek always inherit the earth? Sometimes, but rarely. Usually it's not the meek that run the world. It's Travis Kalanick, who the New York Times this week called a brilliant jerk and all of his friends. It's brilliant jerks that run the world. Like, not to make a political statement, but whatever side of the aisle you're on. Washington, D.C., it's not exactly like meekness is not the top character trait there. 
All right, it's not a political statement, it's a moral and social statement. Like those who run our country are not the meek. It's usually the rich, it's the powerful, it's the Ivy League, it's the educated, it's those with friends in high places. Often it's those who lie and cheat and steal and self-promote and get ahead. Those are the people who inherit the earth. Do the merciful always receive mercy? No, not at all. So if you read this as a list of timeless truths, well, you have a problem. Either Jesus is wrong or we're wrong or something because it does not exactly work. So what is it then? If it's not a list of virtues and if it's not, or at least not per se, and it's not a list of commands and it's not a list of timeless truths, then what is it? Well, first off, this is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus. Keep in mind there's a running debate um, right now, at least in America, on how to best define the gospel. So there's the group makes it sound a bit more hostile than it is, but there is a group that defines the gospel as justification by grace through faith, not by works. There's even a whole group called the Gospel Coalition, and the main point is to kind of defend that view. And there's great people on there, but there's a growing pushback to that view of men and women across the world saying, wait a minute, but that's not how Jesus defined the gospel. And it's not how the early church defined the gospel. So Jesus defined the gospel. We read it last week in chapter 4, verse 17. This way, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That was Jesus' one-line summary of the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The early church defined the gospel this way. Turn back to page 1 in Matthew. Look to the top. The gospel according to Matthew. So what's the gospel? Everything from chapter 1 all the way to verse 28. Turns in the next book, the gospel according to Mark, same thing. The next one, the gospel according to Luke. Next one, the gospel according to John. So the gospel, according to the early church, is the whole story of Jesus, from his birth, through his childhood, his baptism in the Jordan River, the desert, his teaching, his miracle work, his kingdom, his rebellion against the religious hypocrisy, his fight with the nonviolent fight with the power brokers of the day, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his return to the right hand of God, his promise to return back to the earth to rule and reign, all of that is the gospel, right? Now, if you, obviously I'm biased here, you know which kind of group I'm in, but if you define the gospel as Jesus is king and his kingdom is here and it's coming, if that's your kind of, or repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, if that's your summary of the gospel, then you still get justification by grace through faith, not by good works, as a subplot in that much larger narrative. And you actually get it right here at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, because this is the gospel. The kingdom is coming on all the least likely of people, not the rich, but who? The poor, not the happy, but who? The, the sad, those who mourn, not the power brokers of the day, but the meek, the powerless, those that have no voice at all. Not those who have it all together and are good and moral and religious and button their shirt all the way to the top. Well, that's the kind of hipster thing now. Tuck the shirt in, whatever it was a couple of years ago. See, I'm, I'm up to date, all right? Um, like, no, it's not those people. It's the least, people that don't have it together at all. Those people are blessed. Those people are in the kingdom of God. Those people are wrapped up in the new reality that Jesus is bringing to bear on the world, and they did not do anything but show up. That's it. You see, when you turn this list into a list of virtues and or commands, it becomes the exact opposite of justification by grace through faith. It becomes an odd, twisted way of earning blessing, just not through good works, instead through being poor or being sad or being weak 
or being whatever. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, hey, you, you're really, your life's kind of a mess. Come on into the kingdom. Blessed are you. Hey, you, you're really sad. Your life isn't the narrative of successism. Come on in. You're welcome here. Blessed are you. Hey, you, you're poor, not just at a material level, but even at a spiritual level. Come on in. Welcome to the kingdom of God. You are blessed and you're welcome here. And then out of that blessing, that's why the blessing is at the top of the Sermon on the Mount. Out of that place of welcome, hospitality, people who did nothing but show up, now you're in the kingdom, welcome. You're Out of that place, you get the Sermon on the Mount. You get the manifesto for a whole new way to be human. You get Jesus saying, okay, now here is how you live in apprenticeship to me and my way. And it's in that order. First, blessing. Second, after that, a whole new way to be human. Man, that is so beautiful. Am I right? Am I right? No? I think it's beautiful. You don't have to agree. I think it's absolutely beautiful. So first, this is the gospel. Um, But secondly, I think there's actually something else going on here as well, something deep and profound that is easy to miss. I think I did for a number of years, in part because, honestly, I did not want to receive it. And it's this. It's Jesus radically redefining who is actually blessed. So Jesus' list here of blessings is countercultural to the core. It's the exact opposite of what a first century Jew would expect. And I'm not making that up. Here, um, for example, compare and contrast Jesus' list here in Matthew 5 with this one from Sirach, chapter 25. So Sirach is a Jewish writing about a century before the time of Jesus, actually in the Catholic Bible. Just listen to this list of blessings, this other list of beatitudes from around the time of Jesus, just as an example of kind of first century popular level thinking. I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. All right, so here we go. A man who can rejoice in his children. Okay, so first off, you're a man. All right. Secondly, um, you have a great family. A man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. So like all of your enemies die or you beat them back in battle or whatever, and you just kill it in business, and like you crush every deal and you win. Happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife, of course. So she's just great sex and great everything. It's just fantastic. And the one who does not plow with an ox and ass together, because you hate that. That's just no good at all. (laughs) And the idea there is that your business is just killing it. Like you're smart. You have all sorts of acumen. You do well at a financial level. Happy is the one or blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue. So like you're well-spoken. You tweet so good. It's not even funny. And like you socially, you have all the cues. And the one who has not served an inferior. So you're free. Um, You live in a democracy like America or something like that. You don't live under a tyrant. You get to vote. And you either run your own business or you're at the top of the food chain and you're a corporation. Your boss is not like a millennial or something. You have not served an inferior. Happy is the one who finds a friend. So you're not lonely. Like people want to hang out with you. You're cool. Happy is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. You walk in the room and it's just like there's a bit of a hush and people are like, oh, Gerald's here. Oh, wow. And people want to hear what you have to say. And you talk and people are like, wow, that's really interesting. I would not know, but maybe Gerald. How great is the one who finds wisdom? So you're like a sage. You're like a a man, not a woman. You're a man that people go to for advice. 
listen, people want to know what you hear. You want to know what you have to say about this, that, or the other. But none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. All of this is out of place, not of just hedonism, but out of a place of the fear of God. Like, you honest to God, you love God a ton. Now, I agree, this sounds like a really blessed life. I mean, minus the ox and the ass, sign me up. I'm a man, I qualify, at least for the first one. Sign me up, I love the list. But that's not Jesus' list, is it? In fact, Jesus' list is nothing like that at all. Here's my very loose paraphrase of Jesus' list in American. Blessed are the down and out, the unemployed, the underemployed, those being gentrified in Northeast, those on the wrong side of globalization, those without a college degree or health insurance, those who are spiritually simple, who really have very little to offer because they are in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the sad, the depressed, those grieving the death of a loved one, the failure of a marriage, another miscarriage, the pain of their genogram, the racism of our nation, because one day God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Blessed are the quiet, the shy, the socially awkward, the uncool, the badly dressed, the people with six followers on Twitter, because one day they will be free from the tyranny of what others think of them and they will take up their role as king and queen over God's world. Blessed are the messed up, those who just can't get it together, the addict, the mentally unstable, the overweight, those from an abusive home, for they will one day be so full of God's life that they won't know where to put it all. Blessed is the little guy, the people who get stomped on, passed over, and they don't fight violence with violence. One day they will get all that mercy back with interest. Blessed are those who want nothing to do with America's wars, her violence in the name of democracy and freedom, but who know the true source of peace and prosperity is in a gun or an army, and they are willing to suffer to bring a new world to bear. One day in the future, everybody will recognize that they are the most like God. Blessed are all the Christians in a post-Christian culture that is hostile to all they believe, even though they are made fun of, looked down on as stupid and mean and behind the times, they get to share in the cross-shaped life of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Now, just to clarify, that's not a translation from the Greek, okay? I'm not a scholar. That's a creative adaptation. I'm just trying to help you see what Jesus is getting at here. Because if you grew up in the church, the odds are you've read this a thousand times, and so right now you're numb and you're apathetic to just how subversive it actually is. Jesus is radically redefining who is actually blessed. It's the exact opposite of what you would expect, not only in the first century, but in the 21st century. In fact, I would argue that Jesus' list is more subversive now than ever before. We live in a nation that I love. I love our country so much, but we all know, it's not a secret, that our nation is a social experiment built around the pursuit of happiness, right? Unalienable rights, life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. Now the problem, if you remember philosophy class from your freshman year, is that we have redefined happiness over the last few hundred of years to feeling good about yourself and your situation. And there's all sorts of problems with that. For starters, social science now tells us that at least 50% of happiness is your genetics. So some of you just were born happy, and we hate you, all right? No, we don't hate you. We're just makarios. We're jealous, all right? Congratulations. You have the right genetic code. I don't, or whatever. Secondly, happiness is it's all about comparison. 
So if you have more than the status quo or more than you're expecting, then you're happy. That's why human beings lived for millennia without running water, without electricity, without a sewer system, and we're really happy. But now if we don't have the new Tesla or the new iPhone or the new APC jeans, the new whatever, then all of a sudden we just feel like my life is over. It's the end of the world. Happiness is like sociologists call it a hedonic treadmill, a hedonism, the good life by American standards. It's like a treadmill. You're always walking, but you never actually arrive anywhere. But really, the greatest problem with happiness is that as we've defined it or redefined it, it's based on good circumstances. In fact, that word happiness comes from the old English word hap or happenstance or what happens to you. The problem is, for the most part, your circumstances are out of your control. So what happens when everything goes well is you're happy, but what about when everything does not go well? My point is, we define happiness as feeling good about ourselves and our situation, and then we go out, we go to college or whatever, and we chase after it, and then life happens. And you hit 30, and all of your dreams did not come true. You're still just trying to figure out what to do with your life. You finally get a ring on your finger, and whoa, is he a letdown. Don't say that to anybody, but wow. Or you're like, no, he wasn't, and, but now my marriage is just over. It died. Man, I started my business after years of dreaming, and a year in, it went belly up, and now I'm in debt. Whatever, just life happens, and there's lots of great stuff in life that we celebrate, and there's lots of less than great stuff in life that we don't celebrate at all, and we have no clue what to do because our whole life, if we're honest, our whole culture is built around the pursuit of happiness, and now you can't be happy, or can you? Because Jesus seems to be saying, you're poor, you're sad, you're oppressed, you don't have it all together, congratulations, Makarios, let's throw a party. Who wants to go out for beer tonight? Like, I'll buy. No, I'm homeless and poor. Judas will buy. He has tons of money. <laughs> let's go. Let's have dinner. Let's go down. Come on, let's go down to Ryan's restaurant and like order half the menu. Let's have a great time tonight. Congratulations, you made the list. You're thinking, wait, Jesus, what? Are you like, what is wrong? Now, the only way to make sense of Jesus' list of blessings is through the lens of the kingdom of God. Otherwise, Jesus is out of his mind. And keep in mind, and Tim said this so well last week, that the kingdom is both a present reality and a future hope. And you have to wrap your head around that. You see that tension between the now and the not yet right here in the list of blessings. Notice there are eight blessings. Notice the first one and the last one are in the present tense. Verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs what? Is the kingdom of heaven. The middle six are all in the future tense. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they what? will be comforted, next line, they will inherit the earth, next line, they will be filled, next line, they will be shown mercy, and on down the list. You see that tension right here in the list between the present and the future, and what theologians call the now and the not yet, and we live in this, in the language of academia, in the time between the times, between the world as it was before the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and the world as it will be at the return of Jesus to make all things new. 
new. We live in that creative tension, in the angst, in the incomplete, in the language of the poet, in the unfinished symphony in between these two worlds, at a transition point in human history. And the world, in the world as it is, this list right here is not always true. The meek do not always inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are not always filled. But, but, this list is starting to come true, even in the present. We're starting to see a little glimpse here, a little glimpse there, just an echo, just a preview of coming attractions, just a little bit. It's starting to come true in the reality, in the whole new rule and reign of God over the world. And one day, it will come all the way true. And in the meantime, we live in that tension with blessing for today and hope for tomorrow. I've been sitting in this text for a few weeks now, and honestly, it's just, it's wrecked me. God, in a good way, God has really been using this in my life, in my family. Um, a lot of you know that my wife right now is, is ill. Um, she's had a kind of a chronic illness for about a decade, but about five months ago, it just took a nosedive, and um, we feel so much love and support from you guys. Just thank you. This is just, we're so grateful to God for you guys and for our family, and just, you are an amazing, imperfect, but beautiful group of people. And uh, the update, there's not much to update. We're still, the doctors are running test after test after test. A number of scary things are off the table, which is great, but uh, we don't know for sure yet and won't know for another month or so but the most likely candidates are either MS or late-stage Lyme disease. And the doctors are all saying, root for MS, because that would be a way better option. Like, I don't want to root for MS, Um, but it's more likely that it's late-stage Lyme, but we don't know for sure yet. Um, But we're living in that uncertainty. We don't know exactly what it is for sure. We don't know, will Tammy get better? Will she stay the same, which is kind of, you know, a click or two above bedridden? You'll see her at church a lot. She was here this morning. She'll sit down and worship. It's not because she's not into worship. It's because there are a lot of days where she can barely stand. Um, Or will she get way worse? Will she end up in a wheelchair? That's very much on the docket as well. We have no idea, no way to plan or chart it at all. Very uncertain future. But if you ask Tammy, um, she was here this morning, if you were to ask her, hey, um, you know, how are you doing? She's really honest, one of my favorite things about her. She would say, man, it's really hard. But then nine times out of 10, she would say something. Um, After this teaching now, she has to say it. But she would say, but you know, I feel really blessed. And I would not trade my life for anything. And she, you're like, oh, that sounds like Christianese. But if you know my wife, like she's very straight up. That's, That's actually, she means what she says. And I think the question that we're asking right now is how do we view our situation through the lens of the kingdom and embrace the blessing in it even right now? And I know it's not just my wife who's dealing with this, the sense of, man, this is not, this is not what I signed up for. This is not um, your best life now. This is not the life I wanted. This is not the marriage or family experience that I wanted. Um, she's not alone. I know there are people, because I know you. There are people all across the room tonight. I think of my own community. I had tea with my sister a few days ago, and her infant daughter, my niece, Birdie, was a healthy, beautiful little girl, about six months old, was diagnosed with, started to have seizures, and was diagnosed with infantile spasms. So on all sorts of heavy medication, long story short, won't know for a year or two, but the odds are very high, permanent long-term mental disability. 
And so they're dealing with that, like this beautiful little girl that will probably live at home for the next 50 years. And another person in our community that was over for dinner just a few nights ago who lost her husband a number of years ago. It's tragic. And through that experience, one of her children um, just took it really hard and is now, years later, just kind of driving himself into the ground. And just the pain that she is living under right now. How does she, how does my sister, how does Tammy, how do I, how do you view our situation through the lens of the kingdom of God? And here's the key, embrace the blessing in it. In it, there's something there for you. Now, if you're here tonight and you don't find yourself on this list, um, first off, praise God, all right? So please don't miss reading tonight. There's so much angst in our nation, and there's this real, like, spirit of guilt and shame right now across America where, like, if you're doing well, you're, like, bad and racist and terrible and all of that. And maybe you are, but hopefully not. That's not what I'm saying, okay, tonight. Other people are saying that. I'm not saying that tonight. This is not a guilt trip for you. If you're here and you're, like, rich and you're happy and you have tons of power, just, like, tithe, please, okay? (laughs) and take me out to dinner once or twice a year, all right? That's all I ask. So first off, celebrate that. Celebrate that because that is not normal. That's the reason we call it privilege, right? It is God's original intention, I believe, for every human being on the planet. What we call privilege is God's original intention for everybody, right? So don't feel bad about that, but just know it's not normal and don't feel entitlement, instead feel gratitude, all right? Don't feel guilt or shame, feel gratitude. But secondly, like, do feel the responsibility. The odds are that all around you, there are people who are on this list, who are poor, who are sad, who are under injustice, who don't have it all together. What would it look like for you to leverage your happiness on behalf of those who have less than you, right? So if you're not on this list, fantastic. We just celebrate that tonight. Thank God and share with others in need. But those of you who are on this list, you find yourself here, at least in one, you're like, dude, I'm four for eight. Oh, I'm sorry, okay, whatever. Or I'm two for eight, or I'm one for eight. You're here in some way, shape, or form. Here's all I wanna say to end. You live in a culture that says you are not blessed. The American narrative, and I love America, but it goes back to the pursuit of happiness, our founding fathers, the land of opportunity, a nation of immigrants. Come, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. bootstraps. The American narrative is one of successism, what Richard Rohr calls the winner's script. It's this narrative of a linear trajectory, storyline, and upward mobility, of kind of like each year, each decade, each generation, we move forward, we get more money, we get more wealth, we get more power, we get more influence, we get better looking, we get what, like it's this upward mobility narrative. And this is seeping into even in the church, the way that the church has been shaped by our consumerism, by the winner's script, by the, just think of that hashtag that's so popular right now, like with hipster millennial Christians, the best is yet to come. You know that hashtag? Oh my gosh, I hate that so much. First off, that's a quote. You know where that's from? That's a quote from Corey Ten Boom's father, if you know who that is, to her in the middle of the Holocaust when she was risking her life to save Jews from extermination. It wasn't like a pep talk, self-help, kind of healthy, wealthy, and wise thing. But that's how it's now used. The best is yet to come. I just think, really? Like, I love the optimism. But like, do you think John the Baptist would have like said the best is yet to come after like he was doing really well and then all of his disciples went over to Jesus? And then he had to say this line that made it into the Bible. That was cool, but he must increase and I must decrease. And then he was put in jail 
And then he had a crisis of faith. And then he was beheaded because of Herod and this weird kinky sex thing with his stepdaughter. The best is yet to come, hashtag J the B on Twitter or whatever. I don't think he would have said that. You think Paul would have said that? Like, I need to go to Jerusalem. And then he's there, and then he's betrayed by the religious establishment that he grew up with, his friends, his family members, his pedigree. And then he's put in prison, not for a month or two, for two years, then another two years. Then there's a shipwreck, then there's a weird thing with a reptile, then there's Rome. It's just like, you know that story? Hashtag the best is yet to come. Like super apostle Paul, whatever. Like, if... Now, I like that line, if by best, we define best by Jesus' definition of best, and by yet to come, we factor in the resurrection of the dead, then I agree with it 110%. Absolutely, the best is yet to come. But if by best, we mean the American definition of success, and yet to come, we mean in this life, I hope that is true for you. I hope that is true for me, but there's no guarantee. Am I right? And this is not to depress you or discourage you or bum you out. Let's just be honest about the reality of life, the disappointment of life, the joy, the beauty, the gratitude of life, and the hardship of life. And here's what happens. When you live in a cultural narrative that the church often buys into of successism, of the upward mobility kind of linear narrative, life will get better and better and better and better. If you buy into that narrative, and then that's not your story something happens, and all of a sudden you aren't rich, or skinny, or beautiful, or smart, or you didn't get into the right college, or you didn't get married at 21, or you did, but it was hard, or you didn't have a healthy child, or this or that. All of a sudden your life doesn't fit the upward mobility, linear American script. What then? What then is the kingdom of God? I just want you to hear, in a culture that says you're not blessed, I just want you to hear that you are. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. End quote, Jesus of Nazareth. And here's the thing to end that is so mind-bending to me, and if it's a bit ambiguous, I apologize because I'm working this out in my own life. But I think that what Jesus is saying here is that we're not blessed in spite of our pain, but we're blessed in our pain. So when, when I say blessed, what I don't mean, when I say you're blessed, what I don't mean is like count your blessings, look on the bright side, make a list of all the gratitudes, all the stuff you're thankful for. It's all about perspective. Don't compare yourself to Twitter or whatever. Compare yourself to the rest of the world. That's all great advice. I'm all for that. You can get there from Philippians 4 and all sorts of other places in the New Testament. But I, it's great. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think he's saying, hey, you're blessed. Look on the bright side. I think what he is saying is that there is a blessing for you, if you will receive it, in your pain, not in spite of it, and even because of your pain. I don't think he's saying your pain's a good thing. I don't think he's saying that poverty is good, or mourning is good, or oppression is good, or dysfunction is good at all. But I think he's saying that somewhere under the rubble of that, there is a blessing for you if you will receive it. People came to Jesus poor, and they went away rich. No, they went away still poor, but now they were blessed. They came to him sad, and my guess is if people came and they were grieving the death of a husband or a child or a family member, they went away still sad about that, but now they were blessed. 
They came to him under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They went away. There was still a Roman Empire, but now they were blessed. You see that? There's something there. I think that what Jesus is calling me to and my wife to and you to is to embrace the blessing that God has for you in your pain. There's something in there for you that's easy to miss. You know who really gets this? And I say this with a ton of respect, and I don't at all claim to get it myself. But the people who really get this are parents of special needs children. You know anybody like that? I know a few, I have a few friends. One with a child with Down syndrome, another with some severe Down syndrome and a whole bunch of other things. There's a brutal honesty where they grieve, they lament, they doubt God, they, they process an openness and honesty. But then they come to a place where they really love that child. Honestly, very few other people do. Honestly, I don't, you don't, because we don't take the time to love that child. But they honest to God, you watch them play with that little cerebral palsy or whatever, kid in a wheelchair, and they honest to God love that human being. Now they don't think that illness is a good thing, but they come to actually love and celebrate that child, and something happens. If you know any parents of special needs children, either they are wrecked by it or they are made into some pretty incredible people with a depth of compassion, a humility, a wisdom, and even a joy, even like a real deep, profound joy. I think, I don't totally get it, but I think that's what Jesus is saying. I think that's what Jesus is calling you and me to. So here, that's, that's it, that's it. Here now in the present, there's blessing. There's blessing for you and whatever the pain is in your life. And if you don't have it, just enjoy your season of life right now and go take somebody out to dinner, all right? But if you're on that list, there's a blessing for you in it now if you will receive it. And for tomorrow, there is hope. There's hope, and we don't talk about this enough. I know I don't, particularly in my teaching. I don't talk about this enough because I forget it in my own life. That one day, in the language of the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you don't have that, it's fantastic, by the way, all the sad things will come untrue. One day my wife will not live in fear of a wheelchair. My niece will be smart as a tack. My friends will not have to grieve the death of somebody they love. One day all the sad things will come untrue. One day Jesus will rule and will reign over every square inch and everything will be as God intended in the beginning. There'll be no gap between rich and poor. There'll be no mourning, no sadness, no pain the language of the New Testament, for the old order of things has passed away. If you're a follower of Jesus, that is your destiny. That is your future. That is the end of your story. It's not a linear thing, but it is a forward motion to the healing and the renewal, not only of the world, but of your life. That is the hope of Jesus. So live in the present, in the blessing, and in the future and hope. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Practicing the Way, a simple, beautiful way to integrate formation into your church or group. All our resources are completely free, thanks to the generosity of The Circle, a community of monthly givers who partner with us to see spiritual formation integrated into the church at large. Special thanks for today's episode goes to Michelle from Malula Valley, Queensland, Philip from San Diego, California, 
Kyle from Portage, Michigan, Megan from Austin, Texas, and Katya from Portland, Oregon. Thank you all so much. To join the circle or learn more about running a practice in your church or community, visit practicingtheway.org 